right, folks, have you ever wondered why brands look a certain way? Have marketing campaigns that, that kind of do what they do and make you think about whiskey in a, in, a, in a different light? Why does Johnny Walker have a square bottle and Glenn Fiddick have a triangular one? Well, today, listeners, we're going to be delving into that. And I'm here with Daz Haldane, as always, to break it down for you guys. This is not another whiskey podcast. I am Mitch Beshard. And as always, I'm joined by the hostess with the mostest, the most esteemed man within whiskey, the myth, the legend, Daz. How's it going, man? Oh, that was lovely. That's it. Uh, that, uh, there's almost, well, I'm quite embarrassed, actually, by that introduction. <laughs> I'm all good, mate. I'm all good. What's happening? Yeah, a bit of this, a bit of that. Just been, uh, it's been a nice week, actually. I've been at home, um, yeah. been doing some working out, haven't been, been doing that much. When I see you on Friday. Yeah, it's nice. Little catch yeah, up. It was nice. It was nice. Eventful as always. Um, you'd been at my house five minutes, and we oh we managed to flood the place, but that was oh. that was fine. Let's not talk about that. Oh, can, <laughs> can we not? Let, let, let's actually talk about that. Let's tell everyone about that. So I go into Daz's house straight off. He's like, "Mate, can can you just come upstairs and help me for a minute? Like, I might need some muscle." And you know, I'm like, "Well, you've got the wrong guy." So we go up, and his radio is hanging off because one of his kids pulled it off the wall. So. He's like, yeah, yeah, just pull it up on the right-hand side. So I pulled mine up on the right-hand side, and I get it in, no problem. And then uh, I'm like, Daz, Daz, you just need to like yank it. Just yank it really hard on your side, and it'll go in. And then we pulled the um, the whole hose, I suppose it is, yeah. off the wall and flooded the whole bedroom. Yeah, and uh, that, was, that wasn't what we were planning on doing, so we were joined by a plumber for, a, for an hour or two. <laughs> Apart from Never that, we had some jams, though. Yeah, yeah, mate. We had a few really nice whiskeys. I enjoyed the uh, that Glenfiddich uh, Snow Phoenix, delicious, mate. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. yeah, good times. And very then you brought, uh, did you bring out some mezcal as well? That's when it we had a little mezcal. mezcal. Yeah, our very good friends over at Amaras over in uh, Oaxaca um, make some delicious stuff. So yeah, I thought I don't know why I thought it was a good idea, um, but it felt yeah. it felt right at the time. Yeah, so uh, we had one of those, and it was it was very very good. Um, but yeah, mate, looking forward to this episode. This is an interesting one. This is a good subject matter for us to be digging deep into. Yeah, so this is something that Daz and I have been chatting about doing an episode on this for a while. And, um, you know, with our backgrounds, we have always been around marketing within Scotch whiskey. So we decided to do an episode on it, have a look and see where it's been, where it's going. Let's let's talk about it. Let's rewind a little bit and look at where we've come from with regards to marketing of Scotch whiskey and how it all happened. Um, for me, I think one of the first things when, when kind of researching this, um, the first bit of marketing on Scotch whiskey was was actually accidental, right? We've got uh, George the Fourth who comes up to Scotland, and it was one of the first ever royal visits for a long time. This is back in 1822. And when he comes up, he demands Glenlivet whiskey. Now, 1822, as everyone listening knows, Glenlivet, the brand, isn't created for another two years after. So he's not talking about that particular brand. He's talking about the Glenlivet estate where, well, what we know is, is Speyside now. So essentially, it's it's this great bit of marketing for the Speyside region of Scotland. So when he goes back to back down to England, everyone's chatting about this, and suddenly everyone wants this Glenlivet whiskey to the yeah, point nice. where we see this crazy marketing going on with with all the the kind of brands around the area where they're branding themselves as uh, Glenlivet. So Glen Glen Grant did it. We see a load of other brands just yeah. literally putting Glenlivet on their casks and on their labels, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, we did an episode on this previously, didn't we? Where we had, I think it was at 29 distilleries at one point carried the yeah. suffix um, Glenlivet. Yeah. It was, it was absolutely massive. Basically every distillery in Speyside was carrying it and it was all the big brands, like you say, mate, McAllen's and um, Cardoo's and things like that. These well-established names in single malt as we kind of recognize them today up until not that long ago um, carried that. And so Glenlivet was a, a sign of quality uh, and a sign of authenticity from an area that was renowned for producing good whiskey. Mm. No, absolutely. I think it was interesting that they, they actually had to go to court to get it all removed at that point. Um, so I think the next kind of stage is to bring in Mr. Andrew Usher. Now, a lot of geeks here might say, well, he wasn't the first ever guy to blend whiskey. And yeah, absolutely. But he was one of the first guys to really push out his brand uh, into the world and actually brand it and and push out Usher's whiskey, well known for OVD, so Old Vatted Glenlivet, which is his brand that he pushed out there. And obviously, working with with Glen Glenlivet at the time, uh, Edinburgh boy, we've got the uh, yeah. we've got the yeah, Usher. Edinburgh guy. I mean, the Usher, he was uh, he lived didn't he at the Pear Tree, a pub uh, just on the south side. And it's a, yeah, it's a great spot just to go and have a wee look around. And actually, just as you sort of move around those parts of, of Edinburgh, I mean, you do see some of the remnants of some of these really powerful, huge businesses at one point, these big blending houses, Usher's being one of those. Mm. Um, the, you know, there's, there's so many examples of that as you move around Edinburgh, of old adverts, old branding and livery and things like that. And obviously, Usher's Hall which he didn't yeah. actually see. He passed away before that was finished, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but blends of the day, though, I mean, yeah, this is what you're starting to see is a, a product that was very much exported to the colonies at the time. You know, it would have gone out to uh, places like India, uh, places over in the Caribbean, even out to the States as well, where there was this growing interest uh, and demand for products from home, in a sense, yeah, 100%. And then moving on to that, you know, we'd be reminiscent if we didn't talk about John, Johnny Walker here. Yeah. The biggest Scotch whiskey brand in the world today. Uh, one of my crazy facts that I always drop in about Johnny Walker is that, you know, by 1920, it was available in 120 countries around the world. And at that same point in time, Coca-Cola is only available in eight. Which yeah. is, that, you know, that that's mind-blowing when you think about how small Scotland is and how quickly it went out there as a brand. Yeah. No, I mean, Johnny Walker is one of those ones, isn't it? I mean, there's so many moments in its history that um, the, the book actually that Nick Morgan wrote uh, the, that, that just tells so many of the kind of key points in, in the Johnny Walker timeline. And it is so much of it is led by marketing, uh, mm. creativity, how they communicated, you know, whiskey just generally. And you had this dandy, you know, this, this striding man, who, who was, you know, a, a gentleman of his day, shall we say, you know, tipping his hat, he had the, the top and tails and all that sort of stuff. And and that that becomes a character, right, that, that people almost aspire to be. And there's so many little subtleties within the striding man that are so fascinating. Mm. Um, and its origins are actually brilliant as well. The story of Tom Brown just blasting away a logo on a on a lunch, wasn't it? Over a, over a bar napkin, basically, yeah. just sort of sketches it together and... Who knew at that point that that would then become, you know, such a significant icon for for any brand, let alone whiskey. 
an interesting fact, the first ever marketing, he was walking right to left. And yeah. then they changed that around to make it like he was walking forward. What's his name from Train Spot? Robert Carlyle. Oh, the the man that walked around the world video. That yeah. was cool. I mean, if you guys haven't seen that video, look up Robert Carlyle, Johnny Walker video. So the interesting thing about that video was they did a whole, so it was it, it was before kind of CGI, I suppose, and all these these effects that we have these days. Yeah. I mean, when was that? That was like 2005, maybe 2006, something like I, that? I, I, think, I think it was 2006, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the story goes that the first day that they had Robert Carlyle doing this, he just he took about 16, 17 takes and just couldn't get all the facts down. And then, you know, they all went off for the night. They're like, oh, we got the right guy to do this. Next day, rocks up, first take, does it, absolutely nails it. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. And it's great because it does tell the story. That, that again, talking about the kind of key timeline moments for Johnny Walker. Uh, he lands them in only three or four minutes. And it's, oh, it's a brilliant, brilliant video. It's one that if you ever want to hear about Johnny Walker and you want to learn the story uh, very, very quickly, watch that. It's brilliant. It's very, yeah. very cleverly done. The other one I thought that I did quite like, and I'll probably put a picture up actually on the Instagram channel, was um, A Sign of the Times was a couple of years after that uh, was the Jude Law video uh, with the Gentleman's Wager mm. where, they, where they're on the boat uh, and they're sitting drinking Johnny Walker Blue. And he says, Jude Law turns around to a French fella, I can't remember his name, but he turns around to the guy and he says, I want this boat. And the guy, the guy's like, oh, you know, it was built in 1928. Nothing like it in the world, rarer than rare. You know, and it's just all these little moments and little things that, that do, you know, they land the key message, if you like, because they're very much talking about the whiskeys as much as they are the boats. And it is, it's little things like that. It's how they weave these little bits and pieces in, these wee stories and these wee moments that actually make you want to be there. I think that's the kind of key, isn't it? Is do you want to be involved in that scene? You know, as a, as a consumer, yeah. you're almost sort of like envious of those people in that scene. And the Gentleman Wager is a good one. The Robert Carlyle one's another brilliant one from Johnny Walker, but they've had many moments um, in their history in terms of like really pivotal marketing moments, you know? I mean, it's interesting because, you know, so our timeline right now, we're probably, we're moving on to like the 50s, the 60s. And I think this point in time, we're looking at this very sort of twee image of Scotch whiskey being advertised, right? It's like the guys in kilts, golf, you know, you've got the, yeah. the Strident Man's a always, great example. We always talk about biscuit tins, don't we? Yeah, it, biscuit it, tins, that, totally. It is, like, it's biscuit tin market, and it's like those, all of the cliches that exist within Scotland, I do think Scotch was using them at that point. And, yeah. and, and rightfully so, because, well, let's face it, very few people were traveling at that point, you know, and, 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 and actually that part of sort of Scottish culture would have been really quite interesting for people in America mm -hmm. down in the Southern hemisphere and things. It makes a lot of sense. Most people listening will understand that blends really came first, right? I mean, blends led the way for single malts and where we are today. Oh. Blends are, are still account for a huge majority of, of the shares worldwide. Uh, I think it's still around about 80 to 90% of the sales. So unbelievable. But, you know, when we move forward, we move into this single malt category that we talk about now. And that didn't really come about until the 60s. Yeah. Now, you and I agree to disagree on this, Daz, because being a an ex-Glenfiddich guy, you know, we always talked about Glenfiddich being the first one to really market a single malt Scotch whiskey. And guys, mm. I'm going to emphasize the fact that I said market there, not create the first single malt Scotch whiskey, because mm. that, that was always the big thing, right? 
Scotch whiskey was being sold, well, single malt Scotch whiskey was being sold uh, around Scotland for a long time. And it was being pushed about in, in kind of little bits and bobs, little pockets for a long time around the world. Yeah. But when we move into the early 60s, Glenfiddich was really the first one, in my opinion, to start pushing a, a marketing campaign with regards to what is a single malt Scotch whiskey out there. Mm-hmm. But you no, have a different yeah, yeah, no, uh, there is a, there's definitely two sides to it. I mean, I love the advert that um, uh, you, uh, you've got it on your screen. No one can see this, but we will put it up as sit when you drink Glenfiddich. You may never stand for a blended scotch again. You know, I love that. That's such a great statement. And I think what was happening in the early 60s was there was a there was a demand for light, floral, quite fruity, single malt whiskies. Um, because flavor-wise, they were they, what we were seeing in the 60s and 70s was this move away from heavy oily whiskies into a much lighter style. Um, brands like JB, Cutty Sart, what we would call kind of white wine whiskies, if you like, those that were created by usually wine companies, JB being JB, of course, and Berry yeah. Brothers creating Cutty Sark in, in the 1920s. So what you're seeing is these lighter blends becoming quite popular. So no surprise to see slightly lighter malts really starting to get awareness and 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 starting to be people's choices. And it was deemed as a more sort of sophisticated choice as well. But at the same time as Glenfiddich was doing that, it would, you know, you would be hard pushed to ignore that Glenn Grant was doing a similar thing. They were really, you know, steaming ahead with single malt whiskey sales. And what was happening was um, a gentleman called Armando Giovanetti come over from Italy and basically felt his boot um, with whiskey from the Glen Glant distillery and took it back to Italy and started to distribute it. It's no surprise that, you know, very, very quickly, Italy is the number one single malt whiskey market in the world, all the way through the 70s uh, for single malt, that is, and really popular. I think it's still in the top five markets in terms of single malt whiskey consumption, so it's right up there. Um, they really love their single malts. What was interesting about Glen Grant was the style Um it was viewed as not too dissimilar to Grappa. Hmm. Uh, Glen Grant, usually in Italy at that time in the 60s, you would have found it as a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. Um, and it would have been, you know, in the hotel bars and things like that as well. So really, really well distributed around Italy. So Glen Grant as a brand um, was marketing itself in Italy. Uh, it was shown in film houses and stuff like that as a, as a great product, as something that was quite desirable and that should be tried and things. So, um the one of the chaps who was involved at that point, who who actually married the, the daughter of the owner of, of Glen Grant was a guy called Hugh Metcalf. Hugh Metcalf was a major figure in terms of how malt whiskey was marketed. And he's kind of one of these unsung heroes. He left Glen Grant in 1978 um, when Seagram's took over the Glen Grant distillery. And, and he then went to join McAllen in 1978. And what we see in 1978 is a, conscious effort by McAllen to start marketing their brand as a single malt whiskey almost to that date. So mm-hmm. it's uh, a guy that grew Glen Grant to be the number one single malt whiskey in the world and then went to McAllen and helped grow McAllen to, to what we know it as today. And he played a big part in that. Well, I mean, it's, it, that's interesting, right? Because, you know, let's let's chat about McAllen. You're very well versed to, to chat about McAllen, having worked for them for seven years, no, five years. Something like Aye, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's fascinating when you look at the old advertising of McAllen. I mean, I studied their their marketing for for quite a a, a sort of bit because I I think it's very important to mention McAllen when it comes to marketing. I mean, you have this brand back in the early seventies 
that everyone's just seeing on optic in Elgin. You know what I mean? Like it's just, there's, there's nothing going on. And then you have a guy called Willie Phillips who comes in in 78 and goes, actually, let's, uh, let's start pushing this in a different way. And we see these McAllen adverts going into the times by the crossword, very strategically put in there, Mm. you know, and it's like, it, it, you, you look at those adverts now, I've got some of them on screen and they're quite, you know, it's like a guy fishing with a, a bottle of McAllen right next to him and all this kind of stuff, but very strategically placed in what they started to do. And and, and you look at McAllen now, it's the most valuable brand within single malt scotch whiskey in the world. Yeah, I'd say by a country mile. I mean, let's yeah. face it, nothing really comes close to McAllen. And that is through their marketing. They've marketed themselves as a luxury brand and done an amazing job of that. So, there's, yeah, there's, there's a couple of parts to that, definitely. Um you had where the Shiaks had the Shiaks were the distillery owners, um, and Alan Shiak, uh, he'd he'd actually had to come back. His brother passed away, and he had to come back from America. He was a playwriter, uh, a movie director in Holly, Hollywood at the time. He comes back to the distillery and really starts to get very involved in the development of the brand and things like that. And with Hugh Metcalf coming over as well, there were there were lots of creative minds involved with McAllen at that point. Um, a couple of guys that were brought in to run comms and, and develop advertising and stuff were David Holmes, a copywriter, a guy called Nick Salomon as well. And they they really started to develop the tone of voice that we know from McAllen, which was one that was quite educated. It was one that was targeting your educated at that point male whiskey drinker. Let's face it, that's who they were after. Um, so going after things like the Telegraph crosswords and things like that made that really, really appealing. Um, but there were a few kind of key points, I think. The the colourful nature of it, the the watercolours and things that started to come through allowed them to start developing a, a way of going about working. And, and what McAllen always did very well was collaborate, always collaborated with people. So Sir Peter Blake, who's who's obviously done things like the Beatles, um, CD covers, tape covers, and things like that. He he did the big collections for McAllen and things, did the, the 1926 bottlings, Sir Peter Blake bottlings and things. So, you know, that was a 60-year-old, very early days that was done. Um, you know, Peter Blake became quite involved through this sort of David Holmes, Nick Salomon connection. So lots of creativity, lots of ideas flying around at a time when many other distilleries were doing things in a quite a traditional way. Actually, McAllen was starting to look at things at, at, with a different point of view. And really why McAllen was doing it in such a creative way wasn't necessarily so much to, to look at consumers. It was a lot of it was about wooing and courting good distributors for their markets internationally. Mm. And that was one of the audiences that they really knew that they had to convince that this stuff was really good. Um, Hugh Metcalf, though, one of the things as a marketer uh, that he was adamant about was that the thing that made McAllen special, despite all of this creativity and things, was the fact that the whiskey was just so good. The whiskey that they inherited from previous you know uh, custodians was was so good it was an easy sell um but it had a great story and it was great whiskey and therefore it was very successful and actually it makes you it's quite annoying isn't it it's not that difficult <laughs> yeah, it's very cool i mean it's yeah. hats off to mccallum like no matter what you think about mccallum incredible success story about pushing a single malt scotch whiskey into that luxury portfolio and you know, i still think today like you go to the distillery we went there last year together yeah. and you hadn't seen it before you hadn't been in properly uh incredible experience when you go in there like it or love it it's it's like nothing else you see in scotland so yeah really cool but i want to move away from the calendars i want to chat about something close to our heart 
let's go back to Diageo. We chatted yeah. about Johnny Walker already, but you know, when we started up with Diageo, our big thing was the classic malts, pushing yeah, that out into bars and then working with Dave Broom on this whole flavor map thing, which I think when it comes to, to 80s sort of advertising or well, I suppose marketing, it's a really interesting part of Scotch whiskey because the Diageo had the pull to really push those that idea of regionality and make it accessible to people and make them understand it a little bit easier, I suppose. And, you know, we know now that regionality is that the lines are a little bit more blurred when it comes to talking about Speyside versus Isla and, and all that kind of stuff. But I think at the time it just made people go, all right, I get this. I can now order what I want to order. And I understand what flavors I like a little bit better, you know, I, and I think that flavor map was a big, big push for big, big thing for Diageo to push out there because on that flavor map, you had a load of competitor brands. It wasn't yeah, yeah. just Diageo populated, you know? I mean, we're looking at it right now and, you know, I can see Old Pulteney on there. I can see Ben Reich, uh, Springbank was there, Ardbeg, you know, all these big brands that, that they didn't really have to put on there, but they wanted to show all these uh, different flavors within whiskey. And that was one of our jobs. Talk about marketing. We went around these bars and we put all these flavor maps in there and and, and tried to ed educate consumers about all this. Yeah, no, I mean, 100%. I love the classic malts. As a, as a concept, I think it's brilliant. And it's a it's a masterstroke. I mean, any anything that's as successful as that, it's funny, isn't it? Anyone that you meet who worked at Diageo in the kind of late 80s and early 90s, every single one of them, would would put their hands up and say I was involved with the classic malts, you know. <laughs> it's like that classic sort of uh, success has many fathers, uh, failure is a bastard, you know. Um, yeah. But the 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 number of people that we worked with at that point, what was brilliant is that we we were working as brand ambassadors at a time when most distillery managers would finish their last couple of years working as an ambassador, almost an honorary role in some ways, and it was guys like uh, Gordon Bell. Uh, Charlie Smith and some of these guys that had been kind of winding down their whiskey careers. Ian Williams is another guy that was quite involved with this sort of yeah. stuff. And and they were heavily involved with the creation of the classic malts. And what was great about that, I mean, flavor mats, I see them as two separate things. Classic malts was a way of giving people an opportunity to travel around Scotland, flavor and aroma wise, uh, in in a single collection. And 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 what that would do is it would allow them to understand that there are different whiskies coming from different places, just as a general rule of thumb. And what, what was good about that as well, it wasn't hard and fast. I don't think it was rules. People were not saying that a lowland will taste like this, yeah, but, yeah. you know, but the whiskies from this area generally are a bit lighter. Yeah. The whiskies from Isla Lagavulin are generally a bit heavier, you know, and, and, and then that became, that evolved into the flavor map in a very clever way in a, in a way that whiskey had never really been communicated before flavor first, rather than, the age statement and things like that. And so I, I, I loved the classic malts. I still think it's one of the best things we've done to communicate whiskey because it is highly complicated. There's so many variables and different places and all of that yeah. kind of stuff. You think about that, that came out in the eighties, you know, 1988, I think was the, yeah. the formation of the classic malts. Yeah. And then you had the, you had the kind of B side classic malts. I always think of the classic malts as like the, the, the best known album from Diageo. Right. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. and then you've got like the others, the sort of the wider group. I think at the time it was 13 that were considered classic malts. Um was like the extended 
uh, version or even the B-list, sort of B-side second album or something where you had Kling Leash and uh, all these distilleries sort of in the background. But yeah, yeah. No, brilliant stuff. Hats, hats off to Diageo for that. And I think that was a lot of fun as well, actually, for us going around bars and giving bar owners this tool to really explain what whiskey was. It was they, they always appreciated it, you know? Very cool. And, and it was, and it, do you know, it was very visual. Yeah. You know, you could stand in a pub and, and almost go left to right and, and get, get a sense of what was going on there. And no, it was a really, really cool tool. I wish I had one, actually. I don't have a plinth in the house. We used to have hundreds, mate. We used to have a boot full of them once upon a time, bro. <laughs> I I, th- I remember you using them for firewood. It was at one point. Yeah, don't sh- don't tell anyone. Sorry. Sorry. Hopefully, <laughs> Phil's not listening. Yeah, seventeen thousand flavor maps in the fire pit. <laughs> <laughs> the next sort of uh, milestone we need to get to is this point where people become aware of no age statement whiskies. So the age statement gets dropped. Uh, you know, some people are pissed about it. You had a great example with your time at McAllen. For me, the classic sort of thing is when I think about no age statements, and I think about the, the first ever whiskey to do it, it was Abelara Buna, right? I mean, and people loved that. But then suddenly there was like this big backlash. And I'm talking at this point was round about the, the 90s where people went, oh, if you don't put in an age statement on a whiskey, then I'm not interested. And my whole thing about this is, I mean, I, you know, I for me, I think classic example was when I moved to, to William Grant and & Sons and it was 2010 and Snow Phoenix came out. And that was a great example of a mm. good whiskey without an age statement on with a good story that was reasonably priced. I, I think when it came out, it was around about 70, 80 pounds maybe, mm-hmm. but it was great juice. Yeah. And what annoyed me about this point in time was there were some brands that were out there that were putting out terrible juice and taking mm-hmm. the age statement off. And, you know, we've chatted about this before. We know why it was happening, because they didn't have the stock. They didn't have the crystal ball. They couldn't see that there was going to be this massive demand for whiskey. So they had to strip off this age statement here, right? And, yeah. you know, let's not name any brands here, but we all kind of know who was guilty of that and maybe yeah. who still is guilty of that. Yeah, I think I think it's difficult, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, you're right. There wasn't a crystal ball. Uh, people didn't know the demand would come. Uh, they also didn't know where it would come from. And and I think this is where we had some challenges. What we had in the UK was a really established malt whiskey market that had built a number of brands. And then what happens is when other markets start to get turned on, places like Taiwan, for example, Singapore, uh, even out to North America, is yeah, you see distilleries starting to really struggle to fulfill demand. And 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 that's when the sort uh, that's when the wheels start to come off a little bit because you don't have whiskey yeah. of the age it should be at, um, and you also don't have whiskey in the character that it should be at. You know, I mean, the, if you're going all out on sherry casks, you know, have you got a stock model that can facilitate that growth? And and a lot of distilleries didn't have that, and rightfully so. You you just don't know how long it's going to take for these brands to develop. You know, and and so much of it was a blending business. Um, it was a real struggle for these businesses to shift into single malt whiskey businesses. And that doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And I think going, going to your point, that's what annoyed me was when everything was, was overinflated without an age statement and it didn't mm-hmm. taste good. And you're like, yeah. that makes us look greedy, you know, as an, as an industry. And that's what annoys me a little bit. 
let's we're not going to name any brands here, but I haven't seen that happening recently. I haven't tried anything recently that's been like that. Well, maybe there's been one. I, I don't mind talking about brands. I remember when 2012, 2013, when the 1824 collection came out at McAllen, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was it was clearly a struggle with stock. Um, and, and you know, if you listen to Bob Dalgarno, who was the, the whiskey maker at the time, um, and even some of the communication that went out, you know, it was always deemed to be something that wouldn't be there forever. Um, although what I would say is that the Sienna and the Ruby that were in that collection, I thought were absolutely brilliant single malt whiskies. Uh, and, and, you know, I thought Ruby was a fine example of good Macallan matured and first fill European oak. And regardless of the age, it was probably a nine and 10 year old, to be honest, but mm. it was really, really good juice. I really liked it right up my street in terms of what you get from Macallan. Um, but then there are other examples, uh, 57 North, Talisker, great non-age statement whiskey. At a time when Talisker was generally still carrying age statements. Um, I, I thought that it's in my top three whiskeys ever. I absolutely love that stuff. I think Talisker Young is great Talisker. I'm not a big fan. I know you like the 18, but at 18 and 25, you know, I, I, I could take or leave it. But Young Talisker for me is always good. Very, very good. But, you know, there's hit and miss, man. I think there's some distilleries that worked for, other distilleries that probably didn't work for. Yeah. Other distilleries maybe had some motivations. One was was to fulfill demand. Others were were maybe just maybe more about quality and maybe about the style of, of whiskey that they were producing from, from era to era. And just, you know, that it's just, I think each had their own motivations. Some good examples, mate. Some not so good examples, I suppose. Let's move on to celebrity endorsements. So yeah, I, what's your thoughts on this, man? Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I, I just think it absolutely stinks. Um, is it because you're not I mean? a celebrity and you're jealous? <laughs> yeah, what is that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the way, I am. Do you know yeah, who I yeah, think I yeah, am? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think um, for me, I suppose one of the, the the first ones that sticks in my head was Beckham and Hate Club. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't know there was a load of celebrity endorsements way before that, but within my era of drinking whiskey, that was like the one that stood out for me and also kind of freaked me out a little bit. You know what I mean? You've got this footballer, you've got this guy who's like a a professional athlete, always talks about how he takes care of himself, and suddenly he's drinking grain whiskey. I was like, what the mm. fuck is going on here, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny story, isn't it? Because he's, you know, he was good mates with... um what was Madonna's ex-husband called? Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie, yeah. And he was good mates with the marketing director, wasn't he, at the time of, I think it was at Diageo. I don't know if it was Johnny Walker or if it was on the malts. And it was one of these sort of chance conversations that just kind of came about and evolved. And and I think the idea of it is is really clever. I mean, I remember I'd worked in whiskey for oh maybe eight years or something like that by this point. And it was probably the first time that my little brother turned around to me and, and asked me about whiskey was what's that David Beckham whiskey like, you know, and, and, and it, what it does is it broadens the the reach of, of what, where whiskey can get to, you know, your, your rum drinkers, your bourbon drinkers who are maybe just enjoying whatever it is, not really even thought about scotch, but somebody like Beckham can really shine a light on the category. And yeah. I, I actually liked the way they did it. Um, been a yeah. couple of events with, with Haig in the years gone by and, the whiskey itself, grain whiskey, most of which is from Cameron Bridge, which is, you know, our local distillery, I suppose, um, where we're from. 
and 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 I yeah I loved it. I thought it was really good. But there's there's plenty of other examples like you say, man. Um, you know, you've got uh, the Gentleman's Major with, with Jude Law, which which did come before the Beckham thing. But you know, it always felt like it was building up into something where you were going to get like a major celebrity endorsing some. Not that Jude Law's well, not a major mate, celebrity, need, but Beckham's different level, right? We yeah. need we need to go way back. We need to go Sean Connery here. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. We have yeah. to chat about him. Sean Connery was such a whiskey slag when it came to. It. I mean, mm. I've got there's a picture up here of him doing a Jim Beam advert, which you know isn't Scotch whiskey, but yeah, yeah. obviously it was he was all about it and how he did stuff for jurors as well there's a really cool advert with him it's like the old sean sean connery meets the new sean connery and tells yeah, him to that's stop a cool advert. vodka yeah. you know and, and drink a whiskey yeah um, yeah he was all about that but then i think you know you've got this kind of new wave of celebrity endorsements as well uh, i always get her name wrong but i think it's mila kudis who did all the the jim beam stuff which is yeah. cool to see yeah um and then, you know, talking about stuff that we can't talk about because we're too old. We've got Drake promoting a whiskey now. American yeah, yeah. Whiskey. Yeah. Con We've got George, 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 George Kuzakis doing his with Jensen Button. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and there's been a few that have kind of slipped away under the radar. We were chatting earlier about the Michael Owen with Spay. Um, I was actually with Paul Dempsey over the weekend and he was working at Spay there for a long time. We were having a chat about the Michael Owen one, actually, and having a wee chuckle about it. Just yeah, like, actually, where did it go? Yeah, yeah. It just, uh, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but like, again, if it's if it's done in the right way, I mean, it's difficult. It's quite hard to swallow if, if you can see it's just a paycheck for a celebrity to say something nice about whiskey and then go away and pick, pick another check up elsewhere. Yeah. But what you would hope is that, you know, they do have an interest. They've got a passion there. It's It's a genuine one. Um, and that's something that you can follow, you know, and, and get behind. Because, I mean, you hear all sorts of stories, don't you? I remember, I don't, I can't, this might be an urban myth, but I remember hearing that Johnny Depp uh, was going through a period where he didn't drink. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but... I oh, used to he, just sniff Lagavulin, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. He would sit and sniff Lagavulin, order cases of the stuff, not drink it, and just sit yeah. and nose it. Um, and you hear little things like that all the time about, you know, what celebrities are drinking, what do they enjoy and things. And some of them are quite visible and, and out there with it. Others uh, less so. I mean, the the Offerman one, I know we've covered that off uh, in our peated, um, our peated, you were drinking it, weren't you, when we did our peated episode? Yeah. But there, there's a great example of a celebrity who genuinely loved Lagavulin um, and wanted to do something with it. And it was all, you know, basically on him, I think, wasn't it? He was just the one that was sort of driving the bus there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's great when you have a celebrity that has a passion. And I think Sam Hewn is, is one right right now, yeah. one that's kind of close to your heart as well, because I know you're kind of in a roundabout way working with him a little bit on, on some of the stuff that he's doing. Um, so, you know, cool to see a Scotsman creating a whiskey and, and doing that with, with Sassanac. Brilliant brand. Yeah, amazing. And, and yeah, exactly that. He's using his profile to, to drive his passion for whiskey. And he did a thing with uh, Mezcal as well. Uh, not so long ago so he's yeah definitely a great example of that but i think he does it in the right way because he's genuinely interested we know he drinks the stuff, well i mean right? he's he's not that interested because he hasn't been on the show yet yeah we need to get him on man definitely he needs to sort that out and get your finger out i know you listen yeah yeah man <laughs> definitely stop driving bikes around looking cool You're right i want to move on to super aged whiskey because i yeah. think the marketing of this was it's it's quite new, uh, you know. I we were chatting earlier on, and one of the things I think we agreed on is this whole super aged whiskey category came around when we literally started our career within whiskey, right? So, you know, we're talking 
maybe early 2000s, you hadn't seen anything that was 50 years old. Yeah, we hadn't seen it in Scotch. I I do think we were in the slipstream of cognac, probably, at this point. Mm. Slipstream of cognac? Yeah. Let's put that down there. All right, put that in there. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, (laughs) and and I think that was probably where we were at that point, was really luxurious packaging, extra special products, you know, with all the stories and age and, and mm. artistry behind them and all that kind of stuff. And, and and I'm not convinced that that was necessarily our comfort zone as Scottish people was to go out there and present things in big decanters, beautiful secondary packaging, um, really high age statement products and things, because I think Scotch would, would probably have formed a personality very much like a classic Scottish person would be, you know, uh, to 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 be bold and to shout about what you're good at and things is a little bit braggy. Do you know what I mean? And, mm. no, and, totally. and yeah, we yeah. need to be more humble than that. And it, and it's kind of viewed as a quality if you're humble rather than confidence is viewed as arrogance quite a lot of the time. So I think it was a struggle for a lot of the Scotch businesses to actually go out there and put themselves out there in this way in big decanters and secondary packs and beautiful glassware that would go along with everything. But I think we got more comfortable with it as time went on. And actually, Scotch became more international as a business as well, where you had French ownership and Asian ownership and things like that starting to really come to the fore as well. Um, different international, uh, different nationalities as well, working on the on the brands, you know, and the teams and stuff. So I think it became quickly a thing that we became comfortable with, but not naturally comfortable with. And and these bottles are, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80K a bottle. It's yes. It's, yeah, and it changed really quickly. It feels like that in 10 years has just dramatically shifted. So question for you, what was mm. the first ever bottle of Scotch whiskey that was over 50 years that was put out to the public? I don't know. Neither do I. I was hoping, <laughs> you'd, uh, I was hoping you'd have the answer. <laughs> first 50 plus. So I know there's a, there was, there was a Glenfiddich 50 that was put out in 99, which we can see the picture of right now. And you look at that, that's like, it was just, like a black kind of wine bottle. It wasn't anything. It was like a wooden box. I drunk. A f- I opened a few of them actually. That was good. Do you juice. know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if it was um, something that Richard worked on with Dalmore. Yeah. Okay. So anyone listening, let us know when the first bottle of Scotch whiskey over 40, 50 years old was put out. I mean, super aged right now. It's getting crazy, right? What are we up to? A- 81, I think, with McCallum. 81, the McAllen Reach. With the Reach. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a race to 100, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't know how you feel about this, man, but you know, I, I, it saddens me a little bit. Like, when we get to 100, I'm not going to be a happy man. I don't want to see that headline. Yeah. Because that diminishes everything else that's out there. I think one of the really, like, fun stories that I like about super-aged whiskey was... Glen Elk, uh, sorry, Craig Ellicky, when they did, I always, I always get Glen Ellicky and Craig Ellicky muddled up. You do you do that, or is that just me being old? That's just um, you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Craig Ellicky, remember when they did this 51-year-old, and yeah. they literally poured it out around the world. It was like the 51-year-old Craig Ellicky bar, um, yeah. and it was you had to sign up, and you got put in a lottery to, to, to get a dram of it. Literally poured everything out didn't sell any of it i thought that was really cool like a nice bit of marketing for a super aged whiskey you know yeah it was cool i remember georgia bell was working on that wasn't she and she was sort of traveling around yeah hosting those tastings in various places now they're very very cool right so best marketing campaign 
on Scotch whiskey right now? What do you think? Um, okay, there's a couple. Um, do you know when we when I was thinking of adverts, I always think about my childhood. You know what what did you watch on telly? And um, a couple that stood out for me was uh, the Glen Morangy one, the Glen of Tranquility. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I, I don't know why I've remembered that because I watched it back on YouTube, thinking, "Oh, that was amazing," and, and it isn't actually that amazing. But <laughs> I don't know why I, it's like landed with me. Dude, I remember the famous grouse ones as well because my granddad used to drink famous grouse all the time, and he loved those adverts, just the, with the grouse popping up and just walking across the screen and shit, and just. Well, there were the red, there were the red carpet ads at one point. So I don't know if you remember, but they would play the song with doing, 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 and then when his foot touched the red carpet, the tune would change, and then it would go back, and then it would go back, and then it became this little dancey thing, and it was really cool. They were they were like nineties adverts. Um, so yeah, Gilbert, the the most famous of the grouse, I suppose, um, were good. But the the one I liked was the it's kind of delicious and wonderful, the more recent Len Morangy ones. And that's kind of where I was going with that. I really liked them because I, talking about adverts that you see and you watch them and you go, I wish I was in that. Do you know what I mean? And I thought those Glenn Morangy ones looked really, really fun, very colourful, super playful um, and really, really nice. So yeah, the, the, the recent Glenn Morangy ones were really cool. Yeah, kind of that, and they, wonderful. they were amazing. I know I you, you like them. You've talked about them a couple of times. Yeah, and also the uh, Lefroig one, Opinions Welcome, like hat, hats off to that. That is so good. Like just... Mm. You know, it's. I love the fact that it's just so honest and just unedited. Like, maybe as actors, if it is, I'd be really sad. But I love the fact that they they just, you know, people going nosing it and going off. I don't know what's going on here. I think one lady goes. I think they let the cows into this one. Yeah, love that. Yeah, so it's funny. Cool. And then for all, and actually, I worked a little bit. I wasn't heavily involved at all. A couple of bits and pieces, but the guys that Jura the the. 212 people that live on Jura, they basically were all in the advert. I don't know if you saw that one. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I, I, that was I, cool. I think I mentioned that to you because I, yeah. I saw that. that was and that was on, it was on, yeah, it was on just a couple of years ago. And, and it was really strange because it's everyone from Jura. So literally, if you go into the pub, you'll meet one of those people, you know. And I thought they were really nice. The shittest one, comfortably, for all their great advertising and all the amazing work they've done in whiskey, the McAllen Make the Call advert was was terrible, hard to watch. Yeah, I disagree with that. There was a Bacardi one um, with Jures. The Baron, remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was terrible. But Sorry, Bacardi, called... if you're listening, but you know, it was back in the day. I don't know who made that call, but it was just a horrible advert about two guys going out drinking and uh, just so sexist, so horrendously bad. Yeah, the McCallum one was bad for different reasons because it was a guy on top of a mountain, I don't know if you remember, and he just jumps off. Yeah, with the wings, the wings. Yeah, yeah, and then he gets his wings, and it was like the um, I don't know if you remember the advert. It was a, a Paco Rabanne Invictus advert. Um, is almost identical to that. Um, mm -hmm. and obviously drinking and jumping off of cliffs and things like that. I mean, you, you but I mean, it's, it's so confusing. I'm not. The McAllen exactly one sure. got pulled though, right? It got pulled. It's still on YouTube. You can still watch it on YouTube. Um, so if you if you type in the McAllen, make the call. Um, you'll see this guy jumping off a mountain, basically growing wings, and I'm not and really what, sure what the point was. was. Was it not the Portman group said like, oh, that says like when you drink alcohol, you can jump off a cliff? And but well, I think with all things considered, uh, young male suicide as as the major killer of men under forty. Um, watching a guy under forty jumping off a cliff um, after a dram is just fucking stupid. 
I'm, 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 I, I don't I, honestly I watched it for the first time and I was like I can't I can't believe they've made that like right. I, I, that's my head went straight and I like I'm quite open-minded I like advertising and whiskey I'm not I'm not one of these whiskey guys who's like oh shit adverts marketing's a waste of time it's all about the juice in the bottle actually I quite like all the bits and pieces that come along with it but that one I was just like and I know some of the guys that worked on it probably I'm just like, how's, that? how's that happened do you know what I mean mental for all the like I say for all the great stuff they do that one I was just and I know they would have spent a fortune pushing that through man Whiskey and movies, obviously, big part of advertising marketing within Scotch whiskey these days. Yeah. We have a whole episode on this. We, we do. Did. Yeah, we should revise it, actually. We should go back and yeah. do another one because I'm sure it, it just changes all the time. I don't, I don't know. I mean, we, we covered the classics there. You've got Bond yeah. and McAllen. You've got Blade Runner with Johnny Walker. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Archer and ho- the whole Glenn Gooley thing. Um, Star Trek with Scotty just always drinking Scotch whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else have we got there? We've got whiskey galore, um, and obviously Bill Murray with that movie, which I'm blanking on the name. Um, what's it called? Condas. You're great with movies. I'm not. I'm really terrible. I, I'm literally looking at this going, I don't think I've seen any of them apart from the James Bond one. Daz is like the worst person for, <laughs> for talking about. If you ever meet Daz in the street, by the way, don't bring up movies because he don't, doesn't know shit about I, movies. I, I'm so terrible. No, it's not my uh, not my area of expertise. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good that you know all of them. That that you're. If I was going to phone anyone, if I had one of those t- the game shows, you know, where you've got to phone a friend. Phone a friend. If, yeah, if it was a movie section, I'd definitely phone you. Mov- movies and shite music, I'd phone you. Well, listen, I think that's covered off marketing pretty well. I think yeah, we've yeah. kind of nailed it there. I mean, most people have probably tapped out at this point because they're like, fucking hell, they've been talking about it too long. But I mean, the um, thing is, it's massive. It's, it's like such an important thing. And, and actually, when you look back and try and understand, you know, why are you drinking the malt whiskey in your hand at the moment from a Glenallachie or a, you know, maybe a, a Kilkerran or whatever it might be, you, you know, you're sitting drinking those whiskeys because the industry has evolved, it's changed. And we've shifted yeah. from a... 99.9% blended whiskey market to what it is today, which is probably 92% blended whiskey, 8% single malts. And even in our career, with all the changes we've seen in single malt whiskey, the volume shift hasn't made a massive difference. It's It was always around 8% to 92%, but the value shift is huge. Um, single malts probably contributing 30% of the value and 70% of the value coming from blends. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot more attention a lot more weight uh, put into towards the malt whiskies because they're fascinating right we're we're, we're seeing a, a place a certain place you're seeing the, the small batch distillation techniques the single cask bits and pieces you know you can really explore the subtleties and nuances through those but you can only do that because the whole of the industry is, is working towards something and blends play a key role in that as well and we should never forget that so uh, yeah no it's cool to go back through some of those old adverts what we'll do mate is we'll put some of them up uh, on on Instagram, and we'll share just some of the old bits and pieces that we've come across. Yeah, so Daz, great chat about all that. I think what we need to do is get a professional in to talk about the marketing of Scotch whiskey. You sat down with Ken Greer recently. We're going to put that out as an extra episode yeah. next week, right? Yeah. Tell us about that that chat. Yeah, I mean, look, Ken Ken's Ken's a busy boy. Do you know what I mean? He's um, he was a marketing director over at Edrington for for a long time worked on Grouse, the development of the Grouse brand, and then moved over to Maltz and, and oversaw a lot of the, the great things that happened on McAllen over the last sort of 15, 20 years. So um, he was also my old boss 
a guy get on with really well. So yeah, we're going to hear from Ken and, and hear about all of his crazy ideas and his uh, weird and wonderful mind and what he got up to back then and just some of his thoughts as well, just on, on marketing and whiskey. He's a consultant these days, so he's working across a lot of different projects. So yeah, a, definitely a guy you want to listen to when it comes to this sort of thing. That rounds up for this week. Thank you all for listening. Daz, amazing to have your knowledge, your compassion, caring when it comes to recording these. Like, always a pleasure. Never a fucking chore. Never, never. Never come back to my house ever again. (laughs) All right, guys, that's us out for the week. May all your whiskey packaging and stories behind your whiskey be as interesting as one of Daz's haircuts. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? There we go. Slam Jamaica. Good to see you, bro. See you in a bit. You too, man. Cheers.